Hello, and welcome to Cecil Radio, Episode 3, a chance to talk through all kinds of topics about Cecil. I'm Susan Weber, and with me today is David Stone. David, thank you so much for joining in the Cecil conversation today. Thanks, Susan. Excited to be here and chat about Cecil. Oh, great. Doesn't everybody want to just chat about Cecil? So before we get to some q and I'd love to have you tell us all a little bit about yourself. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so I've been with Barry Dunn for about six years now. I'm out of our Portland, Maine office, um, specializing in financial services audits, so banks, credit unions, broker-dealers, um, as well as employee benefit plans. Awesome. And as compelling as all of that is, David, you've got to tell us one quick fun fact about yourself, something really fun. <laughs> oh, boy, you're putting me on the spot. Um <laughs> On my weekends, so I grew up on a farm, and uh, on my weekends to this day, I spend a lot of time on my grandfather's farm, helping out, um, especially in the summer, you know, out in the hay fields, and don't know if that's necessarily a fun fact, but I, I find it fun. I like being out there, you know, being outdoors and helping out. I love that. I, I don't know that I would classify it as fun. Maybe if it were, if you had one of those hay barn, you know, the hay bales come down the chute and you could slide down the chute, that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Um, but I love that. Thanks for sharing that, David. Um, I'm going to give just a little quick background about myself. I'm, I have said it before, I am so eternally grateful for a really diverse and never dull, let me tell you, 26-year public banking career. Um, given today's interest rate environment, uh, some of our listeners may appreciate this, but I started my banking career when the prime rate was 11%, right? 11%. So hopefully we won't see that. But anyway, um, most recently, I've been leading credit risk initiatives, activities, and governance, including adopting CECL in the first wave of adopters in 2020. So with this final push to adoption in 2023, I'm just hoping to help others lose a lot less sleep in the process of their implementations than I did. Um, so anyway, that's uh, a little bit of our background, and we're happy to have everybody join us today. Uh, so David, um, you know, I think you know, as you've been out and about talking to clients, you know, I'm sure you've had your ear to the ground and there have been some good conversations and questions as people are kind of moving towards that Cecil adoption date. Uh, wondering if you had any special questions you wanted to cover today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks, Susan. So, you know, there's, as you know, so much to chat about when it comes to Cecil and I feel like, you know, there's those those bigger topics that everybody's talking about, but I think I want to cover some of the maybe lesser talked about items today. You know, some of those things that people should be thinking about that maybe they're they're not currently. Maybe putting it off. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, I, I know I know one that you know comes to mind right off the bat is um, unfunded commitments. Mm. You know, and pipeline commitments and how those are handled under Cecil. Excellent. That is a good question. And I think um, I like this question a lot because uh, I think for some banks, they're surprised when they get to the CECL component of unfunded commitment, just how significant that can really be uh, under CECL. So the basic rule of thumb is your commitments, your pipeline commitments may be included. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Your All of your unfunded commitments that were 
counted before count again um, under Cecil, but you want to think about the fact that this is now a lifetime estimate. Those factors might be um, different, right? You know, they might be more under Cecil, perhaps. And so it can be a bigger um, portion of what you're reserving than maybe you have in the past. Um, pipeline commitments are interesting. So it all comes down to whether or not they're considered unconditionally cancelable. And um, so the way that I often talk to folks about this is I really advise that they pull some of their commitment letter uh, some of their commitment letter samples and really look at that language. Um, from a competitive standpoint, a lot of times you wouldn't want to see unconditionally cancelable language in there because you're sort of saying for any reason I could pull this out from underneath you. <laughs> and, you know, most customers, that's not why they want a commitment letter. So in a lot of cases, you're going to probably find that those commitment letters should be counted, you know, those commitments that are backed by commitment letters should be counted. Um, but again, just pulling copies of what you're using for commitment letters and just making sure um, that that unconditionally cancelable language is either in or not in. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that seems like quite the change. Um, you know, I, I can think that for banks and, and credit unions and financial institutions in general, um, pipeline reporting is probably going to have to change pretty substantially due to these, you know, pipeline commitments. And I know the the data that's currently tracked may not be adequate enough, you know, really to to report these commitments in the same segmentation for you know loans that have already been portfolioed. Um, well, is, is that accurate? Yes, and that's a really good point is, you know, a lot of times when you're in that commitment phase, you know, what I have seen is pipelines are just sort of saying, okay, these these amounts are coming in these general categories. But the key here is that with CECL, you'll want that pipeline information to be fed into your um methodology in the same fashion as your segmentation. So you're applying the right lifetime factor to it. And the other nuance about pipeline commitments is that you want to also sort of think about uh, maybe you're very successful, maybe 100% of your commitment letters that get issued end up being loans on your books. But if if you're like most banks, probably not quite 100%. Um, and so you want to kind of think of what that close ratio is or that pull through ratio is. Um, there may be an opportunity for you to sort of discount, you know, the the amount of commitments that you're uh, flowing through that that calculation. But in general, if you don't have that unconditionally cancelable language in your commitment letters, um, it should be part of your methodology. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So you mentioned pull-through rates. I know, I know there's a bunch of judgment calls um, and see. So is this another one of those that, you know, management's going to have to determine what the appropriate pull-through rate is? Well, it could be a, a management judgment, um, but what I would also say is it's probably worth spending some time to the extent that you can, right? Some of this preparation for CECL is to engage your commercial uh, side of the house, to uh, engage your underwriters, whoever's involved in this process, and really uh, do some due diligence on is there anything historically that you can point to that says, generally speaking, this is our success, our closed success rate, right? Because, yep. you know, I would imagine in the sales process, that's probably some information that is uh, is available. Maybe not readily available. Maybe people haven't been tracking that closed number um, in a report, but maybe it's there in a series of reports and could be compiled and used to sort of anchor that percentage discount, um, I think is what you're getting to. Sure, sure. 
Now, another another thought. I mean, there, there's a lot with this with these unfunded commitments. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Some banks are using software or you know statistical models. Mm-hmm. How does that work? You know, when you come come to these unfunded commitments. That is a great point. Um, Generally speaking, what I've seen with software is that the data that's in your core system is the data that's generally getting loaded into a software system. So because pipeline commitments are not usually part of your core processing system, that's probably a manual element that you may have to consider. There may be spots in some software for you to sort of upload that information into or manually key it in just to sort of add it to your overall all reserve levels. But I think if you're starting to think about what are sort of those manual components of the calculation that get aggregated into your total or that you have to have a separate control around, this is probably one of those areas that would, um, you know, be an area of some additional scrutiny. And I should probably say here, David, I didn't say this in the beginning, but I think it's worth saying to folks that um, all of the information and, you know, thoughts and and suggestions that we're issuing here today are completely our own individual opinions. <laughs> good point. Um, good point. Yeah. So, uh, so I always encourage people to engage those professionals that they pay legal advice, you know, legal counsel, um, auditors, regulators, you know, feel free to engage them in the discussion, but just for conversation purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Our yep. own this- opinion. This is one conversation out of many, right? So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, that's great. Well, that's a, a lot of great info, Susan, on unfunded commitments. I wanna wanna switch gears and um, talk about prepayments. You know, another big topic. What should people be thinking about there? Oh, wow. That's a whole other topic, too. So uh, a couple of things immediately come to my mind, right? Where is the data coming from? Um, How are you calculating it? Are you calculating it or is somebody else calculating it? And is the segmentation aligned? You know, sometimes if you're using a provider, for example, they may be using a segmentation that's slightly different than what you're using in CECL. And so, you know, I think just just having some basic awareness of where that information's coming from, who's involved in the calculation and how the calculation is run and can it be aligned with your segmentation or some of those immediate things that come to mind. Yeah, can you can you give us a few examples Well, you know, from the standpoint of using a provider or a vendor, you know, I think that's probably... that probably warrants some additional discussion because this this starts to go into an area of what a lot of people in the space call a model within a model, right? You might be sending some of your own portfolio data to a provider, and then they're doing some sort of work on that, right? Some sort of transformation. So whatever that process is that they're going through, whether it's mathematical or they're modeling it or they're pulling in other assumptions, you as the bank, if you're going to use that prepayment result, you have to have the same kind of level of oversight um, to their model um, and their process as you would over any model and process. And so some sort of validation um, would come to mind. So I think, you know, from an example of maybe one of those hidden gems, uh, kind of along the topics that we're talking about today, that's one where I think people really have to be very thoughtful about how they're using that prepayment information and what's really happening to the data in the process. Yeah, yeah. Now, given given the recent increases in interest rates as part mm-hmm. of the the Fed's monetary policy, you know, is there something related to prepayments we should be thinking about 
there? I definitely think so. And I think this is an area where potentially banks are at risk of double counting some things, right? So if you're using prepayments as an input to your model or even to adjust your lifetime, your um, average life, you know, of what you have left on your your loans, prepayments are, are part of the calculation. So if you're using a point in time prepayment rate, right? It's not going to necessarily be considering the environment we're heading into. It's going to be looking at the environment we've been in, right? So I think about that particularly in what's happening in the mortgage space. As rates go up and up and up, that refinance activity goes down and down and down, and that makes an immediate impact to your prepayment rate. So whether you're using a static prepayment rate, whether that prepayment rate is adjusting quarterly, whether you're using some sort of long-run average, if you even have that available, um, those are all things that banks are going to have to really thoughtful about. And then if you find that you're using a static point in time, what does that mean for potential adjustments, right? And, and definitely a rising rate environment um, does not necessarily affect all loans the same way. So being thoughtful about, you know, do you have something in your history that would help you anchor some of that? Makes sense. Okay, David, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. You are published now. You and Brooke just put out a great article about this next topic that I would like to pose a question to you. What can you tell us about debt securities and CECL, right? These are new to the equation, and some people may be unfamiliar with them entirely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Susan. Um, and, you know, the, the focus has really been on loans, loans receivable, um, when chatting about CECL, and, and rightfully so, but there are some uh, impacts that CECL have on debt securities. And and before I dive into those impacts, you know, maybe I'll just take a quick step back and explain the different types, you know, different classifications for debt securities. So there are there are three different classifications that can be used. Um, the first is trading, so they can be classified as trading securities. Um, and for for CECL adoption, there is no impact to trading securities. So we can just write those off now. You know, we're not going to discuss those any further. That's um, awesome. One quick, simple thing to cross off the list, right? <laughs> One thing you I don't know, have right? to worry about under CECL. Whew, gone. <laughs> that, that's rare, right, Susan? <laughs> that is rare. So we'll celebrate it when we can. Certainly. <laughs> now, um, yeah, we're we're not we're not off the hook that easy for the other two uh, types of debt securities, those being held to maturity and available for sale. So I'll start with held to maturity. Um, and held to maturity securities are exactly what they sound like. They're securities that management um, has the ability and intent to hold until maturity, um, to put it simply. And the impact here that CECL has is that, you know, you need to remember that CECL is a standard that applies to all financial instruments carried at amortized cost. And held to maturity securities are held at amortized cost. So they're in the scope of CECL. Okay. So what we're going to see here going forward is that those held to maturity securities are actually going to be evaluated on a pool basis, just like you do your loans receivable, and they're going to be assessed um, an allowance just as you would for, for your loans. So well, you'll have a valuation account. That sounds pretty straightforward. Sorry about that. Didn't mean to cut you off. That sounds pretty straightforward. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, in, in practice, um, 
I know a lot of clients will have held to maturity securities that are maybe like um, government sponsored enterprise securities or U.S. treasuries that typically carry very little to no credit risk. So, you know, you might not see a huge valuation allowance, if any, on those types of securities, but it's definitely something that um, banks are going to want to consider and and make sure that they have documented. Okay. That sounds great. So there's uh, another component though, right? AFS, tell us a little bit about what that even means. Yeah, yeah. So AFS, so available for sale securities. Um, so these securities are basically, so I mentioned trading, I mentioned held to maturity, available for sales, basically anything else. You know, okay. just all those items that are, well, as the name implies, available for sale. You know, you're not intending to hold them to maturity. You may, depending on market conditions. Um, so that's what's classified and put into this available for sale bucket. And for available for sale securities, so Cecil um, actually eliminates the the concept of other than temporary impairment um, and replaces it with a, a valuation approach. So these securities are still going to be analyzed on an individual basis as they are under current um, accounting standards. However, rather than writing down that security um, upon impairment, you will establish an allowance account for that write down, which then can <clears throat> you know, subsequently be written back up if need be. Okay. So in your experience, where are most of these um, debt securities, you know, who in the organization typically has responsibility for overseeing debt securities in your experience? Yeah, it's really it's really the finance department mm-hmm. um, that's monitoring and classifying these securities on the balance sheet. So I, I would anticipate that the finance department will be most impacted by this element of Cecil. So the great news is if people need some more information about this topic, we have the article that was recently posted uh, to uh, BarryDunn.com. We'll put some information out there about that. But also, if there are additional questions, we have an Ask the Advisor feature, uh, and we'll put the link to that in the podcast description. So if people have more questions, they want to engage in this or any topic, really, um, feel free to post a question. We'll try to address them in a, in a future podcast as well. Perfect. Now, now, Susan, I don't want to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to ask a, uh, I want to ask a home run question here. Oh boy, I'm uh, bracing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so big question: Are banks still allowed to have an unallocated allowance under Cecil? Wow, you really pull no punches. You get right to it. I, you and Ian, right? Ian was in episode number one, and he asked me a zinger of a question too. So, um, anyway, yeah, that's a big question. So I am gonna just pause here and make some people in the home office very happy by saying these are entirely my own opinions, um, and I'm not a CPA, so I do think that's important to to get out there. But there isn't anything that I have read that says or heard that says a bank can't have an unallocated allowance under Cecil. I have not seen anything in print that necessarily rules it out, right? But I would definitely encourage folks to have that conversation with their auditor sooner than later, right? Just to kind of get some conversation going about, you know, maybe why you might be thinking that you would have one. Um, personally, I I wouldn't put too much reliance on them 
just myself. It's just kind of how my brain works. Um, I tend to think of this, if anything, as maybe a timing issue, like between when people get approval for a journal entry and when the final numbers are run, you know, maybe it takes a little longer to close books or maybe you've got to close books prior to when all of the calculations are, are totally finished and maybe there's a little bit of a timing delay. Um, so I definitely think it's one of those topics that uh, it comes up from time to time and I haven't seen or heard that it's completely ruled out. So again, just advise people to kind of take that up as part of the implementation discussion they're having with their auditors. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and great point there at the end about, you know, just having that open dialogue with your auditors um, and just to make sure that your understanding and expectations are are at the same level. You know, no, nobody likes surprises, especially with such a large accounting standard um, on the horizon. So um, we covered a lot today, Susan, you know, a lot of a lot of great questions and, you know, kind of those things that you may not necessarily be thinking about. Hopefully you are now um, and, and hopefully we you know, answered some questions, but I'm sure we also um, created some new ones as well. Well, hey, I love that you chose this kind of thematic for today's discussion because I do think that sometimes these small things, you know, things that people think are not really the the star of the show um, in terms of loans, right? Um, we wouldn't want people to wait so far to the end that, you know, again, to your point, lots of surprises. So this is really great. So David, before uh, I let you go, and thank you so much for joining us today. But before I let you go, I really want to ask you some rapid fire kind of Q&A stuff. You ready? Sure, sure. Go for it. Favorite sport? Favorite sport? Uh, you know, it's changed over my, my, my lifetime. But right now, <laughs> right now, I would say it is football. All right, football. I'm not going to ask you your favorite team because that could be controversial, but football will take. <laughs> How about enough. this one? How about this one? Pancakes or waffles? Oh, waffles, hands down. Yeah, I love waffles. Excellent. All right. And favorite weekend activity? I'm looking for suggestions here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is a good suggestion, but kind of going off of my, my fun fact, I just love hanging out outside and, you know, being on the farm and um, working, I guess. <laughs> oh boy. Well, listen, activity. well, Hey, take a slide down that, uh, hay bale shoot or whatever. I guess that's not really the technical name for it, but I love it. It sounds fun. And I just want to say to all the listeners out there, tune in next time when I'll be joined by Kaylin Landry for an important discussion about Cecil governance and controls. Thank you. Thank you.